Welcome to episode two of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Rebecca Robbins. We are coming to you from the STAT newsroom in the frigid hellscape of Boston, Massachusetts. It is Thursday, March 15th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. The SEC charged Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes with fraud. Unicorn down. Unicorn down. A pair of drug companies did a thing drug companies never do, effectively lowered the price of their cholesterol drug because some group told them to. Immuno-oncology companies are very confident. Are they too confident? Yes, they are. And you know, this podcast could be subtitled, Stat Reporters Travel to Places and Find Strange Things. We're gonna hear from Damien about what it was like to trek to the heart of darkness that is South by Southwest to see disruption on full display. And we're gonna talk to Stat's Eric Budman about his journey to a slaughterhouse in Canada where foam gets sucked from cow lungs in the interest of saving babies born prematurely. But first, a word from our sponsor. At Takeda, we work tirelessly every day to serve the needs of our patients. We aim to earn the trust of society and our customers through our integrity, fairness, honesty, and perseverance. We strive to be best in class and won't stop until we help create better health and a brighter future for people around the world. Learn more by visiting us at Takeda.com. It has been a bad few days for biotech's favorite villains. Let's recap. First, last Friday, Martin Truccelli got sentenced to seven years in prison for securities fraud. And then on Wednesday... This is breaking news on Theranos. The SEC is charging Theranos CEO Elizabeth Holmes and former Theranos president Sonny Balwani uh, with... Uh, raising more than $700 million from investors through an elaborate years-long fraud. Holmes is settling the charges by paying $500,000 and giving up voting control of her company. So, Rebecca, what's new here? So, we already knew the broad contours of everything that's happening here from investigative reporting by The Wall Street Journal's John Carreyrou. So, what's new about the SEC complaint, and Matthew Herper of Forbes pointed this out yesterday, is just how audacious and brazen Liz Holmes's lies were. We're talking about really unabashed lies. So Rebecca, given the you know given the extent of the of the lying and, and the, the charges as laid out by the SEC, uh, $500,000 fine does not seem like a lot of money. You know, it really doesn't. $500,000 is pennies compared to how much money Liz Holmes raised through all of this. Uh, $700 million was the figure that the SEC pinpointed as the amount of funds that Theranos raised from investors by committing this alleged fraud. $500,000 versus more than $700 million, it's not a bad bargain. Martin's getting seven years in prison for essentially not very much, and Elizabeth Holmes is not going to jail yet. She's getting you know $500,000 fine. Uh, that doesn't seem quite right. Elizabeth Holmes is not out of the woods yet. The DOJ could still indict her. So separate from the SEC charges that were just announced, the U.S. Attorney's Office in San Francisco is still at work on a criminal investigation. So the DOJ wouldn't comment when we asked them yesterday. Big surprise. But the Wall Street Journal reports that investigators in that case have conducted interviews with Theranos employees. They've conducted interviews with doctors in Arizona. So we'll be watching closely to see if anything comes out of that. Damien, would you be surprised if, uh, if they indict her? Not at all. And I think one of the major differentiators between what Theranos is accused of doing versus what Martin was convicted of doing is that he was convicted of defrauding investors. So it's just paper crime. Theranos involved patients. People got finger stick tests and were basically, if, if the charges are true, were defrauded themselves. And so that I imagine would be a sticking point if I were on the DOJ side. 
Of course, how many young wonderkins from Stanford go to jail? That's an excellent Ah, point. yes, there's always that. I mean, again, and there's the big contrast between Martin and, and Elizabeth, right? I mean, Martin basically did everything he could to sort of become this sort of troll, and, and she is sort of on the gracing every, the cover of every business magazine out there. Meanwhile, I think it's worth talking about Sonny Bolwani, who is the former president and number two at Theranos. He has somehow escaped notice this entire saga. Under the radar, no one knows much about him. I think Caroline Chen of ProPublica pointed this out yesterday on Twitter. And he's actually not settling. He's going to, to court. This is going to be litigated. So it'll be worth watching his case, too. That's true. I mean, she, you know, she's settling with the SEC. So I wonder if she's talking. I mean, she's cooperating and, and whether that plays into whether or not she gets any, any jail time or not, or this goes criminal or not. And that'll be fascinating. I mean, the criminal complaint against Elizabeth Holmes sort of implies that in the years before she met Sonny Balwani, she was just a sort of starry-eyed entrepreneur whose company was running out of money, and then he comes in, and then the fraud kicks in. And there's sort of a subtle implication there that he was maybe the mastermind of the operation, or I don't know, I guess we'll find out in front of a jury. Adding to all the intrigue, too, is reporting from a number of sources that uh, Elizabeth Holmes and Sonny Balwani were in a romantic relationship. Ooh, I didn't hear that. Really? Well, that'll be a wonderful wrinkle in the Jennifer Lawrence movie that's going to come out of all of this. And we also, we need to mention Tim Draper. Don't we have to sort of say something about Tim Draper here? He doesn't look great. His tweets did not age well. So to zoom out, Tim Draper of DFJ is a high-profile tech VC. DFJ was in Tesla and Twitter and Box and Skype was also an investor in Theranos. And as you may remember, a lot of Theranos investors sued Theranos for the very same frauds that the SEC is describing, but not Tim Draper. Tim Draper chose to die on that hill, and he was defending the company and calling Elizabeth Holmes a victim of a witch hunt as recently as, I think, 2017, late 2017. And not only doing that, but blaming the reporting by John Kerry and others, you know, that, you know, basically that it was all there. This was a vast media conspiracy against Theranos and, you know, Silicon Valley culture or something. I mean, he ends up looking completely ridiculous. I think my favorite line was, quote, I believe Elizabeth is the victim of a witch hunt, end quote. It's wonderful. But it also kind of dovetails with a broader thing in biotech, which is a skepticism of the likes of Tim Draper and other tech investors when they take an interest in the life sciences. And some of that might be a little bit overblown. I think, you know, tech investors maybe deserve a little more credit than the eye rolling they get from the like Cambridge VCs who are all PhDs and such. But this is a blemish on the idea that the disruptors of Silicon Valley can just stride into life sciences and pick winners. And looking forward, that's what we look at, right? I mean, you're hearing all about, you know, artificial intelligence and all these things about how, you know, we can just throw a bunch of supercomputers and we're going to develop new drugs. And, you know, this is definitely a cautionary tale that it's not that easy. Silicon Valley can't just barge into biotech. What happens when biotech strides into a mecca of tech hype? To figure that out, Damien journeyed to Austin, Texas to go to South by Southwest this week. What was the most absurd thing you witnessed? And we're not talking about the long line at Franklin Barbecue. I mean, other than the flyer that asked the question, are we ready for a blockchain for music? The answer to which I do not know. I think the most absurd thing I saw was a giant robot that normally assembles automobiles that had been retrofitted with an LED screen displaying anime eyes and was just gyrating to throbbing dance music on the trade show floor that somehow attracted a crowd of hundreds of people who were filming it. Um, 
why, why was I staying <laughs> But anyway, once I shook off the horror of the gyrating robot, I remembered that I am technically a biotech reporter and I was there to technically write a story about biotech. And that proved to be somewhat difficult because South by Southwest's relationship with biotech as we understand it is inchoate, strained, I mean, you mentioned, you know, part of this, one of the things you mentioned in the story was how Bristol Myers Squibb was having this panel on hacking childhood cancer. I mean, it just seemed to like they were just trying too hard. Yeah, well, that, that's the thing. And it sort of showed maybe the graying hairs of the drug industry, of them descending on this thing and trying to speak the native language of disrupting this or hacking the other. Um, but it, I think there were also cultural differences at play in that there was an interest in science. I met people who were quote-unquote biohackers, but they were PhD scientists, not dudes injecting themselves in the thigh on a stage. But they just didn't seem to track with the sort of sluggish means by which science moves in biotech because of the FDA and clinical trials. There would be a discussion about gene editing, and then the first question would be from some guy in the audience with a beard saying, well, I I'm a scientist, why can't I gene edit myself right now? Shade to people with beards. <laughs> so why on earth do serious biotech people even go to South by Southwest? What do they get out of it? That was a question I put to a lot of people. And I think, you know, for many on the sciencey side, in their minds, communicating about things like gene editing to an audience like that is important and even their responsibility because of the ethical implications there. There's also the fact that South by Southwest is full of educated and successful tech people, and biotech has made furtive embraces of things like AI and machine learning, and so they might be able to poach some dude from whatever.io and get him to use his technology for drug discovery. You've been now to JP Morgan in January. You went to South by Southwest. I mean, should, should JP Morgan conference, should they be worried that they're gonna be uh, you know, surpassed by South by Southwest? Not in the short term, although I would be delighted if J.P. Morgan adopted more neck tattoos the way South by Southwest has. Investment bankers, I think, could use a change in their aesthetic. So I also want to talk about foreskin regeneration, Damien. Oh, great. Tell, tell, us about, tell us about what you saw down there. Well, yeah, so I wandered the whole trade show floor, which was something like 400,000 square feet, and it's all these robots doing lightsaber duels, and as I mentioned before, anime dancing. But I was like, well, surely there must be a biotech company here. And I found the like dusty corner where they put the quote-unquote health companies, and it was mostly personal genomics and um, big data analytics for this, that, or the third. But I found one company that discernibly is doing biotech, and they're called Foragen, and their science is taking donor foreskins and decellularizing them and then using stem cells to basically make them amenable to the transplantee and then, you know, uh, transplanting so, the foreskin. So, so Brent Saunders, if you're listening to this podcast, gene-edited foreskin regeneration, go for it. Shareholders are going to love that. So there's this bad cholesterol drug called Praloin made by Sanofi and Regeneron, and it won approval in 2015, but since then it has been a complete commercial flop, basically because its list price is $14,000, doctors write a prescription, and then payers reject that prescription because they don't want to pay for it. So, in an effort to change that dynamic, Sanofi and Regeneron basically made the promise that if you're a payer and you agree to actually approve a prescription, we'll give you a discount. So drug companies don't normally lower the price or the effective price of the drug on their own. So why are, why are Sanofi and Regeneron doing this, Rebecca? So what's interesting here is that they're doing this at the suggestion of the cost-effectiveness watchdog group, the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review, short for ICER. So ICER ran its analysis and concluded that the drug is worth between $4,500 to $8,000 for certain high-risk patients. 
So it's not surprising that ICER had an opinion about how much the drug ought to cost. What's interesting here is that they actually agreed to listen to ICER. And they worked closely together, I mean, to the point that Sanofi and Regeneron actually like, gave the clinical data to ICER in advance so that they can kind of work up this analysis, right? Things like this happen all the time in Europe. Consider the UK's official cost-effectiveness arbiter, NICE, and that's short for the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence. I got on the phone earlier this week with Steve Pearson, he's president of ICER, and I asked him, you know, what's the end game with all of this? Does ICER want to become the American equivalent of NICE? We as an independent kind of private sector, you know, nonprofit entity, um, are filling a gap in our healthcare system. Um, we're doing it in a way that has some methodological similarities to NICE, but we know very much that we are not a government agency and we have to, to make sure that we fit the American landscape. And I think he makes a key point that's worth remembering. ICER is not the government. ICER can't be FOIA'd. ICER is not answerable to any sort of elective office. And so the curious thing I wonder in seeing this is, how much power is this external, not answerable to the public group, coming to wield over the drug industry and over how basically drugs get to patients? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I mean, I think it seems like Regeneron and Sanofi are sort of bending over backwards to sort of make nice with Hey. ICER. Hey, there we go. Um, but, you know, is that going to backfire on the industry? What happens if there's a dispute somewhere down the line and ICER doesn't have any statutory power here? They can't set drug prices. I can imagine this sort of thing makes the folks over at Pharma, the trade group, very nervous. So it is a landmark thing that Regeneron and Sanofi are basically co-opting ICER's opinion, which no drug company has done before. But I do think it's worth noting that probably is a commercial failure. This is, in a sense, a marketing gambit at the same time. We're bringing down the price so that please finally pay us for this drug. What would be fascinating is if these companies or any company promised to adhere to ICER's recommendations in perpetuity for future drugs. Right. So like with Regeneron's uh, iDrug, iLea, you know, a blockbuster drug, you, you don't see at Regeneron saying we're going to lower the price of that one. We should also note the possibility that maybe Sanofi and Regeneron made a big mistake in setting the price of Proluent so high in the first place. You know, they could have gone lower from the outset, gotten some market share, and then raised the price. We've seen that plenty of times. What'll be interesting going forward is whether this case study sort of empowers not only ICER, but payers. If I'm a payer and there's a new expensive drug, I can say basically, no, I want a bigger discount. You know, like the one Sanofi and Regeneron did on a cholesterol drug. Maybe in the future, it'll be ICER's world. We'll just be living in it. So Adam did a tweet that made everybody mad on Twitter. And basically it was about the sky-high hubris levels of companies working in immuno-oncology. They love to talk about how they're on the way to curing cancer and a new standard of care, but they don't like talking about the very real risk of failure. Adam, I'm curious, what set you off in the first place? So I spent some time this week at a healthcare investor conference. Uh, I won't name the investment bank, but it rhymes with Nowin. And I'm sitting in these presentation rooms, and what struck me was the, the biotech CEO confidence levels in these immuno-oncology programs just seem to be reaching kind of stupid hubris levels. And it's not just a rhetorical issue, right, Adam? You know, these companies have huge market caps, and they're raising huge piles of money. They are. And, and the thing that sort of struck me again was that they're raising huge piles of money, and they're getting these multi-billion dollar valuations on on a sliver of clinical data. I mean, just a tiny, I mean, we're talking about a handful of patients. But I do want to hold you accountable here. The tweet that made everyone mad reads as follows. Best thing that can happen is if a bunch of these mid-cap immuno-oncology stocks blow up. Need to knock the ego out of these mother****s. 
Adam, are you rooting for cancer drugs to fail? Yeah, Damien, you know, I don't want cancer drugs necessarily to fail. But what I see from the investment standpoint is a lot of fast money chasing immuno-oncology stocks for glory. You know, if I hear one more biotech CEO claiming to have a drug that's going to turn cold tumors hot, I'm going to, you know, knock myself out. I mean, this is getting, it's, it just doesn't end well, I think. And this space is insanely crowded, right? Isn't there just a logjam of clinical trials? So you're right, Rebecca. And you know, the, the Cancer Research Institute actually has looked at some of these numbers and they, they've found like something more like 1,100 studies, combination studies. We're talking about like a checkpoint inhibitor plus some other drug underway right now. I mean, that's just an enormous amount of clinical trials. A lot of these studies are going to fail. And what's interesting about the response to you pointing that out, maybe it was a response to your diction more so than your point, but is that I feel like your point is something of a consensus. You talk to people on the science side and they'll say, yeah, it kind of feels like we're throwing things at a wall with these combination studies. And then even you talk to people at biotech companies and they agree that it's frothy. They'll say, yes, my platform, my molecule is really good, but these other guys, they're just chasing rainbows basically. So on a one-on-one -on -one basis, everybody on oncology kind of agrees with your point, but as a group, they kind of have to defend the herd. It reminds me of the phenomenon that, you know, something like 99% of people think they're above average. And finally, cow loogies. So joining us for this next segment is Eric Budman. He journeyed to a slaughterhouse in Guelph, Ontario to learn more about the life-saving foam that gets sucked from cow lungs. So. Eric, how on earth did you find out about this story? So I was at a party and someone mentioned that they knew someone who was just like me. They also played the fiddle. They also were a child obsessed with bird watching and that now they work shoving tubes into dead cows to collect this life-saving foam that's then pumped into premature babies. So that's how I found out about it. So what exactly is the use of foam that is sucked out of the lungs of dead cows? So it's used to open up the lungs of premature babies who are born too early and so can't actually produce this foam themselves. So this foam is produced in the lungs of all sorts of mammals. So how, now that we live in the science fiction future where we have synthetic biology and we can reconstruct the genome of a mastodon, how are we still relying on dead cow lungs to get this like very vital product? That's actually exactly the question I wanted to answer uh, because Pulmonary surfactants, which is what we call this strange foam, are useful both in our lungs and in the lungs of all sorts of mammals. And they're the reason that our lungs don't collapse. Because inside our lungs are these tiny sacs called alveoli, and the interface of those sacs is a layer of water. And the surface tension is such that they would collapse if they didn't have something to actually lower that surface tension. So that's what surfactants are. And it turns out they're really, really hard both to understand and even harder to synthesize. And so it's exactly that problem that brought you to a slaughterhouse in Canada. Yeah. So there are two ways of getting this stuff out of animal lungs. I sort of group them into the mincers and the washers. And the mincers get a bunch of cow or pig lungs, cut them all up, and make this kind of goop from which they then chemically extract the surfactants. And I was visiting a slaughterhouse where they use the washing method. And so in this case, they're shoving tubes into the cow's neck and 
pushing water up inside, and then when the water comes back down, it takes that foam with it. But this is technically a biotech story. I mean, the place you visited, that's a business. It is indeed, and it's a business that's built on a very carefully tended relationship with an enormous ag company. So there's Bless, which is the surfactant maker, which has about 30 employees, and the slaughterhouse where they go to collect the surfactant every Tuesday is owned by Cargill, which has about 155,000 employees in 70 different countries. So it's a pretty strange symbiosis. So as old school as this collection process is, there's a new synthetic in development, right? Could you tell us about what's in the works? Yeah, so there were a bunch of companies that tried to make synthetics back in the day and it didn't really work, but now some of the folks who pioneered some of the animal surfactants have made a synthetic and it's now in clinical trials. And so if that works out, then there may be a huge change in the surfactant industry. And if it doesn't, or until then, these folks will be collecting cow lubies every Tuesday. And that does it for episode two of The Read Out Loud. I'd be remiss if we didn't thank Matthew Orr and Hyacinth Empanado, who produced this week's episode. Jeff Delvisio is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And we want to hear from you, whether you have suggestions for guests, suggestions for topics, gripes about vocal tics. Either way, you can email us at readoutloud at statnews.com. See you next week.